You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at Patreon.com com slash obsessive viewer where you can get access to exclusive b-roll episodes tv and book reviews uh, movie reaction recordings commentary tracks and early access to podcast episodes so for instance last week's episode uh, for a person or persons unknown was posted on patreon about a full week before it dropped uh, this previous uh, thursday And then the episode that you're listening to now was posted on Friday, uh, the Friday before it was released on Thursday. So almost a full week ahead. So, uh, so that's something that's one very small piece of uh, bonus stuff that you get at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Uh, which I'll do more of a spiel about here in a second. But basically, uh, yeah, it goes, uh, all the fees go to pay, uh, paying the fees to keep the podcast running and uh, is greatly appreciated. So again, that's patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Today on the show, I'm going to be discussing The Little People, which is the 28th episode of The Twilight Zone's third season. And it originally aired on March 30th, 1962. And I will be rounding out the episode with a brief non-spoiler review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 35, Project 44, which is available online. I do have a link in the show notes of this episode to where you can watch that episode online, so check that out. The show notes, of course, are at anthologypod.com slash 092, and also in your podcast app of choice. So before I get into my review of The Little People, I want to touch on some stuff that's been going on with me from the world of fiction and science as I've co-opted Truman Bradley's uh, sign-off for science fiction theater. I'm using it for my own purposes to share my uh, experiences with science fiction in the interim between recordings of episodes of Anthology. Um, Not much has gone on. So, uh, the only thing that I, uh, am going to say is, and I've been talking about it in, over the past few weeks on the show, but, uh, as of now, my episode reviews for, for, for all mankind, uh, have officially started dropping on the Patreon feed again, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. I'm reviewing for all mankind episode by episode as I watch them and, My God, this show is amazing. It's so great. I'm so excited that these episode reviews are actually out now um, when you guys are listening to this, at least when, you know, on the main feed, you're listening to this. Um, As of this recording, I'm recording this Friday, October 21st. Um, or 20th. I'm not sure what date it is. It's a yes, the 21st of October. Um, so these these episodes are going to start coming up. The For All Mankind reviews are going to start coming up on October 24th. But anyway, I'm very excited to have them out and finally, finally, like, put those out on Patreon because I'm really, really enjoying the show. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm excited to dig more into it and watch more of it. And, of course, I'm also still doing 
episode by episode reviews of Dark on Netflix, which I still contend I'm only a couple episodes into season two, but I'm still contending that it is one of the finest science fiction anythings I've seen. Um, it is just so great. It is an entirely, entirely my jam. So, uh, so yeah, so check that out on Netflix and again, Patreon, um, further uh, past that. I haven't really done much with science fiction, um, recently, but, um, it's mostly been horror stuff since we're in October and, uh, I'm catching up on some science, uh, not science fiction, but some horror stuff for, uh, what I'm, what my friends and I call Shocktober, which is super clever. I know. <laughs> So anyway, uh, that's all from the world of fiction and science. How about I go ahead and go into my review of The Little People? And of course, before I go into the actual review proper, I'm going to share what I knew about this episode before starting it, before I before I watched it for the first time, as is the entire conceit of this podcast. So what I knew about this episode before was next to nothing, um, I figured that it was about kind of miniature people. And I thought that maybe it, it, what's interesting is I didn't think, okay, so the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror, I've talked about it before many, 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 many times, uh, several of the segments throughout the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episodes have been, you know, parodying or inspired by Twilight Zone episodes. So I just recently talked about that with Little Girl Lost with the little people it's funny because my thought with with what this episode could have possibly been in relation to a simpsons treehouse of horror segment was to think about there was a, there was a segment of treehouse of horror where homer uh <laughs> homer starts time traveling with a def- defective toaster and he's going through all of these different like universes or he goes back in time and messes something up and then comes back and everything's changed. One of the alternate presents, he's in a, he's in the house and then a giant uh, Bart and Lisa stand over the house and they say, oh, look, that ant looks just like dad. Let's squish him or whatever. Um, so I had just I had kind of focused in on that and thought, oh, that must be that must be what this episode is uh, is. Um, it's referencing this episode is what it must be referencing is what I, what I meant to say. Um, it didn't even dawn on me that, that the episode that this was directly, um, that, that the, that the Treehouse of horror that was directly taking inspiration from this episode, the twilight zone was the Genesis tub, which was an episode, um, a segment of Treehouse of horror where Lisa, uh, builds, or like she puts a decaying, or she puts a tooth in, um, she puts a tooth in a tub and fills it with Coca-Cola or something or some kind of cola soft drink. And then, uh, electricity hits it or something. And then life grows. And so it becomes about like Bart and Lisa bickering back and forth and Bart terrorizing them and everything clearly very much inspired by the little people. So anyway, all that's to say, didn't really know much about this. Um, I uh, I wondered if it was uh, I wondered if this was going to be kind of like a spin on the Invaders or on Five Characters in Search of an Exit. Um, I was under the impression that the main characters were going to be the little people and that they were going to have to deal with you know the you know giants taking over and stuff like that. That was kind of my assumption, but I didn't I didn't think too much too hard about it. 
what we ended up getting was a fantastic episode i think which i will talk about now (laughs) uh well before i obviously i have a couple other segments but uh first i'm gonna read the plot summary courtesy of the twilight zone unlocking the door to a television classic by martin grams jr so of course i'm gonna be spoiling the entire episode from here on out so please go watch it and then come back and listen to my review so here we go the little people Two astronauts, Fletcher and Craig, land on the floor of a canyon on a deserted asteroid uh, so major repairs can be made on the, uh, to their spacecraft. Craig, tired of being on the receiving end of orders, doesn't assist the commander with the repairs. Instead, he spends his time wandering the rocky landscape and studying a, a miniature civilization complete with forest lakes, forests, lakes, rivers, buildings, and little people. Having hunger for people at his elbow on his terms, Craig takes, takes hold of the reins and demands to be a god, believing the little people were created in his image fletcher knocks craig unconscious (laughs) and finishes repairing the ship hoping craig hasn't caused him caused harm to the civilization fletcher's efforts for preservation are thwarted when he soon finds himself staring at a life-size statue of craig and discovers that the little people built it in return for craig not destroying their buildings craig pulls a gun and orders fletcher to leave so he can remain behind with his people against his better wishes fletcher departs leaving craig alone on the asteroid to do what he pleases craig bestows a new order on the little people creating a little chaos to remind them of his superior authority a short time later craig hears deafening deafening sounds of another spaceship and when he looks up he screams for two giant spacemen to go away unintentionally getting their attention when one of the giants picks up craig he accidentally crushes him to death and leaves the scene to make repairs to their on their ship while craig's body lies on the ground in a twisted heap the little people pull the statue down over the dead body of their god um and so first i want to kind of clarify something i don't think that in this episode i don't think that fletcher knocks as as it's quoted in the summary fletcher knocks craig unconscious and finishes repairing the ship uh when i read that it kind of seemed to assume that fletcher knocked him unconscious so he could finish it but that's not the case anyway yeah so that's the summary for the little people this episode is a two-hander um as they call it in the industry um (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, um, uh, starring Joe Morris uh, as Peter Craig. Uh, this is his second of two Twilight Zone episodes. He previously appeared in season one's Third from the Sun, which is another very fantastic episode. And elsewhere in the realm of fiction and science, he appeared in one episode of The Outer Limits in 1964, titled The Invisible Enemy. And co-starring in this episode as William Fletcher is Claude Akins, who I was delighted to see because this is, of course, his second of two Twilight Zone appearances. He previously appeared in one of my not only favorite episodes of the Twilight Zone, but one of my favorite episodes of television of all of the episodes of television I've ever seen in my entire life. The monsters are due on Maple Street. Uh, He's playing a very similar sort of character to an extent in this episode, which I'll talk about in the review. But I do want to mention, since this is the the last time we're going to be talking about Claude Aikens in uh, in relation to The Twilight Zone, um, I was looking through his filmography and he appeared as himself in an episode of I Love Lucy, which is available on uh, Paramount+. Plus. 
Um, it's season six, uh, called Deserted Island, I think. Um, basically, I watched it. It's fine. I've never really watched the uh, I Love Lucy, but it was it was fun and and kind of uh, it was enjoyable. It was, it was funny, but basically, the plot is that uh, Lucy and Ethel, um play a trick on oh god the two men i can't remember their names uh ricky obviously and um oh god i can't remember i can't remember ethel's uh husband's name uh frank i don't know but anyway they played a prank on them because they're about they are supposed to um judge a bikini contest and so in order to get them away from that they uh they basically plot to have themselves stranded at sea long enough to have them not be, um, uh, have that, have them not be able to judge the bikini contest. So then they end up, uh, on a deserted Island, which <laughs> is the place where the film, a uh, film is being shot where Claude Aikens is, uh, is acting in it in, in like, I, I don't know, like n- native, like garb, and, uh, the men kind of, uh, bring him into the fold and tell him that they need, that he needs to scare, uh, Lucy and Ethel into thinking that he's going to destroy, to, to murder them and everything. So not exactly the most PC, um, <laughs> plot, but it was kind of neat seeing, uh, Claude Aikens in something that's not two episodes of the Twilight Zone. Cause I don't think I've seen him in anything else, honestly. Um, Writer for this episode was Rod Serling, and director was William Claxton. This is his third of four Twilight Zone uh, director uh, credits. Uh, Previously, we saw from him The Jungle, and next we'll see from him is I Sing the Body Electric. So... Having gotten the talent rundown out of the way, let me go ahead and go into my review of The Little People. So this episode opens with just an establishing shot of a rocket in kind of in a, a, uh, again, a canyon surrounded by like mountains and everything. It looks very deserted. And right from the jump, I'm like, okay, I'm glad that we're getting an astronaut episode because it feels like we haven't had an episode like that in a while. We haven't had like a space age twilight zone episode in a while. And I was getting kind of like antsy for one. So I was very excited to see this episode kind of have, have a light touch of that, even though it's more about, um, kind of the, the human element of these two characters and, and the completely different ways that they view, um, how, how living creatures should be treated basically. So we get introduced to the two, uh, the two astronauts and in my notes, I have two astronauts, Maple Street. Yay. Cause I was really excited to see Claude Aikens. Um, and just right from the jump, Claude Aikens, he, and I noticed this also in, uh, the monsters are due on Maple Street. He just has this incredibly commanding presence, like even before there's even a line of dialogue between them, you know that he is the one that's in charge. He, you know, the dynamic, like right from the outset, because he just has this commanding presence. And it really, really helps that his voice is incredibly deep and authoritative. Um, so it's very much, it's very evident right from the jump. And so they are talking and, uh, also it helps that, you know, um, Craig is basically laying down next to, next to the ship, but I believe he's laying down in the, in the opening shot. But anyway, uh, uh, Fletcher, uh, kind of 
delivers some dialogue that's pretty exposition heavy, uh, referencing um, that the ship is repairable, but it's going to take time because he's it's going to take um, it's going to take a few days for or a day or two for the equipment to cool down enough to where he can actually work with them, and right from the jump. Craig is very much like a downer. He is very much uh, annoyed by it, and he is just looking on the looking on looking at the at the negative parts of it and everything. And he's saying like it's really a nice chunk of land that you uh, that you landed us on. Um, basically, just kind of just looking not on the bright side of anything. And Fletcher just immediately like volleys back at him and he's like, well, you know, listen, I didn't put the, I didn't put the meteors, um, through, I didn't, I didn't brush the side of the ship with meteorites and I didn't foul up the rockets or whatever. Um, so you can chalk all of this up to just basically a force of nature. Um, and I thought that that was really good texture for their situation. And it's also just the first, it's a great way to have our first indication of not only like what their situation is, but what their dynamic is and having just a very clean explanation of the exposition that's needed to tell us why they're there, why they're alone and why they can't have contact with anyone or why they can't leave immediately in doing all of that through exposition that is so clean and effortless in terms of just doing all of these different things is masterful storytelling. It is, it is why Rod Serling is Rod Serling. It's, it's incredible. It's incredibly economic. I love it. So Craig then kind of takes a little tin out and he is complaining about the food. He's saying that, um, he's saying that whoever developed this, developed this food doesn't, uh, clearly doesn't have, um, respect for his fellow man or something like that. And then he kind of tosses it aside and right from like from that point, Fletcher just gets extremely irritated and he just kind of like bites into Craig. And I love that. I love that because, again, this is furthering that exposition, uh, that exposition scene where we were informed and in uh, informed and basically demonstrated their dynamic. It's furthering that because he Fletcher says that like okay listen here you are you uh, I think the actual line was something to the effect of you'll lick a rock and it'll taste like a uh, there may come a time where you where you'll lick a rock and it'll taste like uh, the um, the like a, oh god what was it a um, a drum a drumstick from a thanksgiving turkey but for now for now you'll eat what's prescribed to you buddy and like that is uh, and then he goes on further and says something like you can you know take your belly aching to a ledger uh, or something and don't bother me with it because it's exhausting and it's not constructive and all of this stuff and i just adore that again because again it's that escalation from that initial scene that we have where he's talking about like the actual crash and everything or the emergency landing or what have you but it's going into just just incredibly clearly defining both characters positions and their dispositions as well and i just think that that is so clever and that is just so straightforward and um, and well done. 
And it also adds, it's it's like this line, this interaction is building off of the last one and then also expands on it because he has that whole, it, it comes across, and I'm going to talk about this in a minute too, because it comes across as like a father scolding a child. Like when he says that, you know, you're going to eat the food that, you, that we have, um, and it's just, it comes across as as a, as a father scolding a child. And that is something that runs through the entire episode. And I think it is incredibly well done. And it is, it is a great way to just further that disconnect that the two men have in the dispositions that the two men's face or the, or the dispositions that they have toward their situation and toward the little people even. Um, and I also really like that because Fletcher is so focused on the task at hand and he's so focused on maybe not necessarily providing an optimistic viewpoint, but he is, he is concerned with facts. He says, the fact of the matter is that we're low on food, we're low on water, but we've got to look on the bright side. We landed in a place that, uh, without a scratch on us and the ship is repairable and this place has air. So we're good. Um, <laughs> uh, and I just love that because that feels like an astronaut thing. That feels like, like the kind of astronaut focused, uh, like person who's just primarily focused on the task at hand and is all about problem solving. And I love that. I love that. I love that. So already this episode is very much getting like right to where I need it to be. Like It's right in my wheelhouse. And then it demonstrates, and then, and then like this next piece, I should say, like this third, third act of a mini act of, or third act of a mini play that's in this opening narration or opening scene, I should say, is Craig talking about how he is sick of being led by the nose and he's sick of following orders. And Fletcher just keys into that and he says, he says that, okay, so you're tired of following orders and everything. And then he says, what do you want? Like, if you, if you could have anything, say this is it, what would you like? And he says, like, uh, like a beer and a blonde or something like that. Um, and it's, it's kind of coming across as Fletcher kind of just sizing him up. And I like that. I like that for the dynamic and everything. And then when Craig like asks him what, like, what, what does it matter? Like, what do you, what do you mean? Why do you, why are you asking? He just says, I'm just interested in what makes you tick. And then I love this little dig too, because he says, or what makes you tick so loudly. Um, and then he says, what do you hunger for most Craig? And and at this moment, I thought, okay, well, I wonder if this episode is going to delve into like desires and if maybe there's going to be like a genie pop up or something like that. Not, not the case. But um, I liked that the two men are already at odds with each other. And I started to wonder if it would be all about that power dynamic. And maybe if maybe it might explore the idea of mistrusting authority or yearning to be in charge kind of, kind of yes, kind of no. So I was kind of on, I was on the right wavelength, I think for a brief moment. And so Craig's response is to say, I'd like a whole lot of people at my elbow, the more, the merrier, the louder, the better. And I'd like Yankee stadium on my side, but I like, I'd like it to be on my terms. And then he finishes by saying, I'd like to be the number one straw boss. I'd like to give the orders. And at that, like that line, that, that piece of dialogue by Craig just piqued my interest. Like you would not believe 
because I thought that that had so much potential for having this be a very interesting exploration into like power hungry people. And, uh, I didn't even expect it to go into like insanity things. I kind of likened it a little bit to being maybe, maybe similar to the mirror earlier this season. Um, but that's more about paranoia. So I wasn't sure exactly where this episode was going to go. And I really, really, really love Fletcher's response. He says, uh-huh, I bet you would. And again, I love the way that Fletcher is sizing Craig up because he doesn't seem to see Craig as a threat to him. And I feel like that is incredibly deliberate because like I said, Fletcher is addressing Craig as if Craig is an unruly child and Fletcher is his father. So he doesn't see Craig as someone who could potentially be, could potentially become the <laughs> ruler slash God that he aspires to be. Instead, Fletcher just sees him as this unruly, unruly child. And that opens up such an interesting avenue that this episode explores because this isn't about two men being at each other's throats. It's about one man losing his sanity and losing his necessary. Okay. It's one man losing his sanity slash just falling into the deepest pit of darkness in his brain, in his soul. And the other man is just trying to bring him back to the light. And I think that that is a very fascinating power struggle to deal with in this. Um, yeah, I just, I really like that. Um, and again, Fletcher just doesn't see him as a threat to himself because Fletcher knows that he's the one who's in command and he's in control of Craig. It's not until the little people are discovered that Fletcher realizes that Craig really is mad and he is a threat to other living beings. Um, I, I just don't, I, I don't know. I really like it. I, at the end of the day, I just put Craig is a small and weak man, which I love that that also comes into play at the last scene as well. Um, and so at this point, I'm just kind of really, really intrigued by it. I think I'm wondering if this episode is going to be about Craig's thirst for power and influence. And, uh, and then I, 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 uh, I picked it up here. I said, maybe they'll discover the little people and Craig will try to become their God. And I've never been more happy to be right about something because this episode explores that in a very satisfying way. So this cold open ends with Craig hearing something and he, it's this, it's this whispering sound and everything, the squeaky whispering sound. Craig, uh, Fletcher asks him what's up. And he says, I heard a sound like voices, like people. And then before we get to the opening narration, which it spins to right then, but before we do that, at this moment, uh, at the end of this cold open, I was really wondering if this episode was actually going to not explore the thirst for power, but uh, be more of a straightforward, like, insanity thing. Like, I was wondering if Craig was going to be the only one who hears the little people and thinks that they exist, but they don't really exist. And I've got to say... Spoiler for the rest of this review, I'm so glad that that wasn't the case because what we got was very satisfying. And uh, yeah, I will go ahead and play the opening narration from Rod Serling uh, here. So uh, here we go, the opening narration from Rod Serling. The time is the space age. The place is a barren landscape of a rock-walled canyon that lies millions of miles from the planet Earth. The cast of characters, you've met them. 
William Fletcher, commander of the spaceship, his co-pilot, Peter Craig. The other characters who inhabit this place you may never see, but they're there, as these two gentlemen will soon find out, because they're about to partake in a little exploration into that gray shaded area in space and time that's known as the Twilight Zone. So immediately, my immediate thought with this opening narration is that I was a little bit, uh, maybe not disappointed, but I was a little bit nervous because of the part where he says, the other characters who inhabit this place you may never see, but they're there and these two gentlemen, as these two gentlemen will will soon find out. And my immediate thought was that's kind of disappointing because I was really hoping that it would be about about seeing the little people's reaction to the giant spacemen. Um, and it also reinforced that thought that maybe the episode is actually really going to be about Craig going crazy. Um, again, very glad that that's not the case. And I was wondering if this episode was going to present the little people as being a question of whether or not they actually exist. Um, and that led me to think that maybe it would be kind of a riff on a shot and arrow in the air. Um, and everything, which which I was kind of nervous about because I don't I didn't want it to retread too much um, of a previous episode. So I was a little bit on edge after the opening narration. But when we come back, we see Fletcher working with some equipment, and he when when Craig comes back, he uh, references how Craig is taking a lot of walks. Again, this scene very much reinforced my thought that maybe this is basically a not copy, but maybe it's a, it's another take on this, on the storyline of I shot an arrow in the air. And then even here in a few minutes, when, when they, um, reference the water, I thought like, okay, we are getting another, I shot an arrow in the air. Okay. Uh, again, very glad that that's not the case, but I've just got to say that the way that the way that Fletcher just dresses Craig down is so interesting to me because again, he is he is very pointedly speaking to Craig as if he is a father scolding or correcting a young child because he says where has my wandering boy been today and then he says you sure take a lot of walks buddy just like that tone of like calling him buddy and saying that he's his wandering boy and everything it is it's it's sort of condescending but it's also warranted because Craig is kind of infantile he's kind of he's kind of he's just kind of not not well adjusted he's not mature enough and i don't know it just it again it just has that tone of a father keeping an eye on an unruly child which says and communicates so much about the relationship between the two men and the their dynamic and everything because craig's desires are selfish and horrifying but Craig sees these thoughts and desires as childlike tantrums in a sense. And I I just really like that as we are getting into this kind of the story about the little people because Fletcher doesn't, again, he doesn't see Craig as a threat and he also doesn't see Craig as be, being beyond hope because throughout the whole episode, he does his best to bring him back to sanity. Ultimately, he fails at that, but he still has that optimism that Craig could be salvaged. Craig can come back from his kind of craziness. So, uh, yeah. So then as we're about to get into the discussion about the water, we get a shot of the sky and two suns. And now at this point, I still didn't know what was going to happen in this episode, obviously. So at this point I was wondering like, okay, well, 
you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty obvious shot of the sky or that's a very, I don't know, it's, it seemed like a very important shot of the sky. Of course, what the episode was doing was communicating to us that there are two suns in the sky and, you know, implying to us that, hey, you know, this planet or this asteroid that they're on is super hot. So they're even more thirsty. But what I thought in that moment was I was wondering if Fletcher and Craig were the little people. And I kind of wondered if like the two, the two sons weren't sons, but they were like giants that were staring down and observing them. That's not the case. And like Fletcher and Craig are not the little people in a sense. Um, but I'm either way, I'm glad that they, that this episode didn't go that route or anything. Uh, so yeah. So honestly though, it wouldn't have been a bad ending if they would have, I don't know. I'm glad it didn't, it didn't go that route, but it would have been interesting if it was revealed that the two sons were like the two giants and that they, came down and they saw, no, not, not, that would turn into more of a deity thing. Anyway, scrap that. It would, there's a way that it could have been interesting if they did that, but I very much like the ending that we got. So, uh, Fletcher then kind of offhandedly asks Craig, like, Hey, are you still hearing those voices? And, uh, Craig's like, yeah, maybe. And Fletcher, again, with that kind of fatherly tone, says like, well, maybe you should busy yourself with some of the repairs and everything. And again, it just subtly reinforces that Fletcher knows, Fletcher knows, he he's sized up Craig in a way that he knows that he is at risk for kind of falling into, uh, I don't know, any any number of things. I don't think he necessarily knows or expects him to fall into this absolute just godlike worship thing um obviously he doesn't because he doesn't know the extent of the little people or anything but he knows that his mind can wander and he knows that he can be kind of bratty and everything so he wants him to distract himself with the repairs and everything and then fletcher asks why craig hasn't drank any water and then he immediately jumps to accusing Craig of hiding some kind of source of water. And in this dialogue, it's revealed that they've been there for two days, I believe. And he says, like, every time when the suns come up, you you go for your walk and then you come back, but you haven't drank any water. Um, and so Fletcher's like, why don't you take me on your walk? Show me where you're getting your water and everything. Which, again, is just so interesting because Fletcher, again, doesn't see Craig as a threat, but he has immediately determined that Craig, while not a threat to him per se, is capable of being so selfish and dangerous that he would hold water or he would, he would keep water away from Fletcher so that he could have the water. Um, he immediately thinks of the most negative thing that Craig can do. Um, and I just find that to be an interesting thing because he knows, again, he has sized up Craig. He knows what Craig's capable of. So he just assumes this without giving him any benefit of the doubt or anything. Um, because frankly, Craig has not earned Fletcher's respect or any benefit of the doubt from, from Fletcher, um, judging from what he knows of him and everything. So, uh, Fletcher then, uh, or or Craig's bag falls and then Fletcher picks up the little tin can, which I believe was the container of food from earlier, but Craig has placed something else in it and he looks into it. It's, it's, uh, it's some kind of plant life. He says that it's wet. So he says, you have found water. Okay. What, like, where is it? What are you, what's going on? 
um, and Craig is kind of kind of shady about it, or he's a little um, coy about it. And Fletcher's like, I guess you're not going to mind if I look under the uh, under a magnifying glass at this stuff. And so he's like, yeah, sure. So he looks, and it's trees. It's actual trees, uh, miniaturized, and. So it's so it's basically evidence of the little people. And then Craig takes a small object from his pocket and shows it to Fletcher. And it's a it's a truck. It's a miniature truck. And that's when uh, Fletcher's like, OK, well, is that from the voices? And he says, yeah, uh, I can show you more. Uh, would you like to see more? And then Fletcher, I love the way that Claude Aikens uh, delivers this line. But he's like, yeah, yeah, I would. Because he is like it, it is completely outside of their dynamic and their situation and everything. It is just pure amazement and slight disbelief. Um, it's like, it's like it melts away all of the conflict of thinking that he's hoarding water because this is something that is so much bigger than, than what he expected. Uh, so I like that because it kind of shows that Fletcher is obviously as this whole episode, uh, whole episode demonstrates Fletcher is the more even keeled and, uh, naturally compassionate person. So, yeah. So then Craig guides him to the stream and Fletcher looks down at it. And, uh, the shot that we see is, uh, from the magnifying like thing. It's like a magnifier telescope. He refers to it as a magnifier. But from that perspective, we see uh, the area of the little people that has like a bunch of boats and piers and and like a body of water. And Fletcher says, amazing, it's a whole race of people, no bigger than ants. And I love that that's the shot that we see because that shows how developed they are immediately. And it tells us immediately how advanced a society they are. Um, which in turn makes it clear that they are very, very close to being human beings. They are human beings themselves. Um, so everything that Craig's do- that Craig does to them is heinous and unforgivable. Um, so I found that to be interesting. So Craig goes on to explain that he's been making contact. He doesn't know their language yet. They don't know our language yet, but they've been communicating with math. And he even says, like, they're very clever. They're very, they're very motivated. And in it's 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 incredible. And I love that because that alone there is what a normal person would say. A normal person would be excited about that and be just just gobsmacked by that. But then Craig says that he's only scratched the surface. He says, I've only just begun. And from there, I'm just like, oh, God, yeah, he's going to try to conquer them. And I just thought this is amazing. Um and at the end of the day, I, or at the end of the episode, I thought that it's uh, a great exploration of the hubris of a man who isn't capable of leadership, but demands it. And I find that to be so interesting because that is such a a staple of like the weak-willed, boisterous personality who would seek out power without knowing how to utilize it or without having the compassion and empathy to utilize it in a way that is beneficial to anyone but themselves. And I think that that characterization is embodied so well in the character of Craig in this episode on such a, no pun intended, microscopic level uh, for this episode. I think it's just, it's brilliant. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. I really, I really enjoyed that. So, um, so yeah, so Craig says that they're scared and he starts stomping on them. 
And like my immediate thought is that he's an imbecile and he's dangerous. And again, Fletcher being that kind of opposite, the opposite end of, of the spectrum from Craig, him being this compassionate person, he like he just hits like physically physically hits Fletcher to get him to stop and Fletcher falls to the ground and uh he says you're not a you're not a god Craig um all you've just you've probably just convinced them that there's a devil and I love that and then and then right before the act break we have uh Fletcher going up to like like kneeling down to the to the little people and speaking to them directly telling them that he's so sorry and to asking them to forgive him and it is so it's so like pure it's so very much uh authentic that he has these just incredibly like remorseful words for the little people uh because of Craig's actions and then we get the act break and with this act break i want to just mention that i'm going to try um Lost, one of my favorite shows of all time. Lost feels like it is like I'm gonna I'm gonna lightly spoil Lost. So if you haven't seen Lost and you don't want to be spoiled, you can go ahead and fast forward maybe a minute or so. But um so spoilers on for Lost. Um Craig and Flesher's dynamic in this episode reminds me so much of the dynamic between Jacob and the man in black and Lost. And by that, I mean that it's these two people who are, who are in loss. They were kind of orchestrating or pulling the strings and everything, but they are very much embodying good and evil. Craig and Fletcher are similar in that they are in the presence of another society of people who don't, who are not, they, they seem to be in control of them basically, or Craig does. And I just love that dynamic. And I think that it's so interesting that it was uh, utilized in a certain way to uh, in in the later seasons of Lost, and I kind of wonder if Lost took inspiration from this episode because I know that obviously Lost was very beholden to the Twilight Zone and other science fiction that came before it and everything. But I wonder if specifically the writers' room was discussed this episode when talking about. Uh, those two characters in Lost. So I don't know. But anyway, spoilers for Lost done. Didn't really spoil it all that much, but uh, just to be safe, uh, there's your spoiler warning. So um, when we come back from the break, uh, Fletcher comes up and he, uh, or no, no, uh, we see the ship uh, being tested. Like we see the uh, exhaust coming from the rockets and everything. And then Fletcher uh, comes down, uh, he steps down from the ladder and calls for Craig, but Craig doesn't respond. So Fletcher goes to find him. And when Fletcher enters the realm of the little people, uh, he finds this stone sculpture of Craig. And my immediate thought was, I had two, th- two immediate thoughts. One I thought, is this a sculpture uh, that the little people created in reverence to Craig or, <laughs> and this is kind of silly, or did the little people construct a device that would turn Craig into stone um, because he is their devil? And I thought maybe there's some kind of biblical allegory to that. But in in any case, that wasn't the case. He wasn't turned to stone. Um, he it, it was created by the little people. But what's fascinating to me is that they didn't create it in reverence. They created it out of fear. And I find that to be just so sad and demoralizing, especially when Craig 
seems to just eat it up because he comes out wearing his flight helmet, which looks goofy and everything. Um, and he says that like, he basically says this preposterous, uh, in, um, greeting to him saying that, you know, even God, even gods must observe some of the amenity, uh, some of the amenities, um, or cause he says like, isn't it a beautiful day? Even gods must observe some of the amenities. And so, He's completely gone off his rocker at this point. He's deluded himself into thinking that he's important. And he goes on to say that, isn't it amazing that they created this in one night? And then he even likens it to Egyptian slaves and even the people from Gulliver's Travels, I think. And he has just this self-satisfied, just off the, like, just around the corner from insanity, smile and smirk on his face and tone to his voice. And I love, I love the way that Fletcher reacts to him because he just, he's just like in, in a state of not necessarily full on disbelief, but just amazement that Craig isn't aware of how horrible he is, he's being and everything. Because he says, they've picked themselves a corker of a deity, which I, I love that phrasing. Um, and then Fletcher just tells him off and he's, he explains directly like what a monster he is. And I love that he's just not mincing words. And it's just, he's just, he's just telling it like it is. He's telling him straightforward, like what, what a monster he's being, because these are, these are living beings. These are people and he is treating them terribly. And, and it's, it's unwarranted. And again, his Claude Aiken's presence is amazing. And I love that he has kind of a similar role in this to the one that he had in Maple Street, because in Maple Street, he was more of the, he was like the level-headed character and he was, um, he was kind of the moral center of the character as things were spinning out of control. And again, I think that his booming voice and his strong presence really lean into that, which, I mean, I guess, I wish that there was maybe a third episode of The Twilight Zone that Claude Aikens appeared in, and I wish that in that episode he would have played something completely different. Um, like the actor, I can't remember his name, but the actor that was in um, uh, A Nice Place to Visit and... Uh, oh, God, was that? Was that? Um, uh, Showdown with, with Rance McGrew? Wow. Yeah, I think it, I think it was. Or I'm, I'm not sure, but anyway... Um, but that, that same actor having completely different, uh, performances, but Claude Aikens killed it in both of his, uh, his performances here in the Twilight Zone. So Fletcher, after kind of completely dressing Craig down and, and kind of having to sit through Craig's just BS, uh, he says, okay, well, we're ready to go where a countdown starts in 15 minutes and Craig is kind of surprised and he says like, what, it's ready? Like what? And Fletcher says that, um, <laughs> he says, yeah, it's ready. So let's go in one And he says in 100 years, when the, when the little people realizes, realize who they were duped by and realize that it was me who saved them, maybe they'll sculpt a statue of me instead, a statue of me instead. And Craig just outright says, he's not going to leave. And as Fletcher kind of has his back turned when he turns back to Craig. Craig has pulled a futuristic gun on Fletcher. Now, at this moment, I kind of thought, I wondered, I wondered if it was a gun that the little people made for him, but no, it's not. It's just standard issue for the astronauts in this thing. Uh, I'll talk about it in trivia, but it's from uh, um, Forbidden Planet. 
So uh, this just shows how delusional, de delusional Craig is. And I like that this confrontation just comes down to a simple fact of one man wanting to stay so that he could subjugate a race of people while the other man is trying to wake him up to what he's actually going to be doing and what the long-term effects of that are going to be. And again, uh, it's not that... Like, Craig seems to be a threat to Fletcher at this point, but I would say that he's kind of not because he's not, he's not threatening Fletcher. Um, he's not f threatening Fletcher so that Fletcher won't force Craig off the planet. Fletcher is giving him that choice no matter what. And it's, it's not so much that he is, that he's trying to get him not to make that choice that he, that, that Craig is trying to get Fletcher not to give him that choice. He just wants Fletcher gone because, as he says, there's only room for one god of the little people. And Craig uh, Craig then tells him to just get on the ship and leave, uh, and leave him be. And Fletcher, in kind of his final moments with, with Craig, says uh, that he didn't realize how sick, is, how sick he was. And he says, you're going to, you're going to play make-believe for another 48 hours and you'll crack wide open. And then he says, you're, you're going to die of loneliness, buddy. And again, I love the compassion and resolve in Fletcher's tone throughout the episode and especially here. And I love that he has created or he is, he's keeping up that, that dynamic of, you know, in a, a person in authority, a fatherly figure dressing down an unruly child or trying to see that he trying to communicate to, to someone that he knows more about this. He knows what is going to happen. Um, and I love that he has this, or he has the, not necessarily wherewithal, but he has this, the energy to do that, even with a gun pointed at him, because deep down he knows that Craig isn't in his right mind, but he isn't going to really do anything to Fletcher. He's not, he, I don't think he thinks that Fletcher, or he doesn't think that Craig is too far gone at this point. And Fletcher is still fighting for him in that regard. But then Craig fires and hits the head of the sculpture, which it cuts off and falls to the ground. And that's when Craig says that there's only room for one God. It's a monotheistic society. There's only room for one God. And so Fletcher realizes that he's he's defeated. He has nothing more he can say. And so he says that he really feels sorry for him and then turns to leave. And that sense of defeat he carries is, and this is so, I don't know, this is so hokey or this is like very much like reviewer blurb wording, but I put the sense of defeat he carries is as booming as the giant spaceman's footsteps in a few minutes. Um, so, uh, but yeah, but it's just, it is that sense of defeat. Like he has lost this, uh, psychological struggle with this man who needed, needed some kind of assistance to help him get to, to try to keep him from, from darkness basically. And it's at this point that I put down, I bet giant astronauts will land and rule over Craig. <laughs> so, um, and honestly, I kind of wish that that was the case to an extent. 
um, to have to have these giants come down and just like subjugate Craig the way that he did to the to the little people. But I don't know how the show could have communicated that effectively, especially at the end of the episode. And plus, I think it makes a stronger point and a more optimistic point to have the two giant spacemen um, be, you know, relatively compassionate in a sense because. Uh, I mean, sure, they accidentally murder Craig, but they don't think to, or they don't want to check and see um, if there's other life because they're there for a purpose. So anyway, I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, yeah, so after Craig or after Fletcher leaves, uh, Craig picks up the sculpted head and he admires it. And then he places his foot over the little people and he says, uh, uh, he says, now comes the age of Peter Craig. And then we get Fletcher leaving the planet or the asteroid and Craig just goes full on insanity mode, completely insane, cackling laughter. He tells the little people that he has plans and projects that must be completed. And, uh, but he says that there must be discipline as he throws the head to the ground as a warning and he laughs maniacally. And then he says in this very creepy tone, there will be periodic moments where I remind you that you must not anger me. And again, cackling laughter. He's completely insane. And I found I found this to be so weirdly funny because he then tells them like the first order of business is to build the statue again. And I feel like that's intentional, but it, intentional in a way that makes it hilarious that Craig's first project for the little people is to just have them make another statue of him because Fletcher was right. Craig is a small idiot man who has nothing of value to offer outside of his own vanity and hunger for power. He's not some ideologue that is that gains power through some kind of absurd or horrific um, kind of kind of hatred or uh, bigotry or anything. He is a person who is just so self-involved that he just wants power for power's sake. And the most that he can think to do is, okay, make a statue for me, of me, and then, oh, I blew off the head of it, so make another one. Like, it's just so, I don't know, it's just, there's a level to it that is just so funny to me and comical to me, and it is it is like the show dressing down Craig even further after having Fletcher just be completely like not, like fed up with him throughout the entire episode. Craig does not catch a break at any point in this episode, nor should he because he is a terrible person. And I love that the show is going through such extremes to continually demonstrate that over and over and over again, as it does here in just a moment. So... He hears the noise of a ship in the distance, and like I knew, like, okay, it's going to be giants. Here we go. So Craig covers his ears, and he takes his foot away from the little people, and I found it interesting that this is the one moment where he seems to have some kind of modicum of compassion, even though it's clearly because he wants to protect his reign and his rule, but he he kneels down and he tells them that it's okay, it's just a ship, don't worry, and everything and then he hears other noises, which are the giant astronauts' footsteps. And then we see them standing uh, above the mountains. Uh, one of them notices him and picks him up. And uh, I love this. The dialogue between the two the two giant spacemen is phenomenal because one says, 
uh, like one says, oh, what what do you got there? And he says, a man, a tiny little man. <laughs> and he says, oh, you crushed him to death. And he's he's like, oh, yeah, well, I didn't mean to. And then he just uh, tosses him down. But I love that he calls him a tiny little man because that is what Craig is. He's a tiny, tiny little small man who has such a hubris to think that he deserves to have power and greatness thrust upon him. But at the end of the day, he is a tiny little man who is accidentally murdered um, by giant visitors from the stars. Um, And it's just in that moment, that whole um, a man, a tiny little man, it's just summing up everything we know about the character in one simple observation. And I love it. And so um, the second man says, it doesn't matter if there are other people there. We're only here to make repairs. So it's just, it's showing again that they're, if not more compassionate and focused uh, in the same way that Fletcher is, it's showing that they are at least detail-oriented, that they are focused on their mission at hand. They they don't have any kind of like inferiority complexes or any hubris to think that they can subjugate an entire race of people. So I said that that's probably like an optimistic view, I guess, which it kind of is. I do stand by that because I feel like it's demonstrating or showing that maybe Craig is an anomaly in human nature. And in my notes, I put, dear God, I hope so. So anyway, the uh, giant spaceman drops Craig to the ground. And then in a, in a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful end, ending scene, we get the little people pulling the statue down. And I feel like that is just a beautiful image to end on because it's a great way to demonstrate not only how little influence Craig had on the world and his subjects, but it shows that these little people are aware, are fully aware that he is the devil, that he is an evil creature. And now that now they do not have now he is not they're not under his thumb or his boot. And so they can tear down the statue. And I, I love that. I love that so much. And then we get the closing narration from Rod Serling, which I will play right now. The case of navigator Peter Craig, a victim of a delusion. In this case, the dream dies a little harder than the man. A small exercise in space psychology that you can try on for size in the Twilight Zone. So my kind of closing thoughts on the little people are that uh, I'm I'm still just so glad that this wasn't a potential insanity storyline or paranoia plot. Um, that is just a little bit too tired at this point, I think. And I think that what it does instead is a very interesting, just uh, an interesting stroll down the hubris of an inferior person, (laughs) like, like, like an inferiority complex ridden human being. And one of my other takeaways is that Claude Akins gives just a fantastic performance that really hammers home the delusional aspect of Craig. And I kind of feel like I haven't really talked much about, um, uh, Joe Morris's performance And I think he did a fine job. I think he did okay. It was very solid, but he is kind of, he's kind, he kind of has to do a lot of big acting. And so like when he has this complete mental breakdown and even when he, even when he says, 
that like the little people are made in his image like that he says like they're made in my image it's very just it's a little cartoonish a little bit but it also suits the story because he is a cartoonish villain he is a cartoonish personality and when he's doing this maniacal laughing and everything it does feel a little bit maybe not over the top it's not that bad it's not that bad it's it's good it's fine but it it could have maybe been I don't know. I don't know. I think it was fine. It was fine. It's just, it's a little, it's a little too extreme for my taste. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But overall, I thought that this was a very good moral story and the comeuppance for Craig at the end was very satisfying. And at the end of the day, I really liked this episode of the Twilight Zone. Um, so those are my thoughts. And, uh, uh, so let's see, I have some, uh, tr- I have some trivia for this episode pulled from unlocking the door to television classic and from IMDb and other various sources. But, um, producer Buck Houghton discussed the final scene in which the giant astronauts appear and stand towering behind the mountains of, in the foreground. And so he explained that this was an optically composited match shot which combined new footage of the two actors playing the Giants with stock location footage of the real mountains around Death Valley, which was filmed two years earlier for the episode I Shot an Arrow Into the Air. So basically they composited the the, the shots of the astronauts against existing footage from that they shot uh, of the locations where I Shot an Arrow Into the Air. So I wasn't off the mark with my comparisons to that. And uh, this episode used several props and costumes originally created uh, for MGM's Forbidden Planet. Uh, so the sidearms, like I said, were uh, that were worn by them are from uh, like the plaster pistols from Forbidden Planet. I really need to watch Forbidden Planet again. Um, and also the two giant spacemen have uh, uniforms that are from Forbidden Planet. Um, so, uh, okay. So I found this interesting too, that, uh, in the twilight zone radio dramas adaptation, um, of this episode, the name of Craig was changed to Nomph, which I thought was interesting. I don't know. And apparently there was an additional character of a talking ship's computer with a female personality. I'm very curious to listen to that radio drama to see like how that factors in, um, cause I'm very curious about that. Um, let's see. And then another piece of trivia is that the rocket launch that was depicted, um, was actually footage of a test flight of a Mercury Atlas booster. Um, and also ironically, uh, or coincidentally, this episode aired about a month after NASA's John Glenn became the first astronaut to attain earth orbit upon just such a rocket which is awesome. And then the final piece of trivia is a little um, kind of uh, snippet of something I got from Unlocking the Door that uh, it believes that, or it is believed that this episode uh, was heavily influenced, uh, was a heavy influence, or even lifted entirely for the pilot episode of Showtime's remake of The Outer Limits. Um, I think it's like The Sand Kings or something. Um, so I don't know how similar that is, but eventually at some point in years and years from now, I'll get to that, I'm sure. But yeah, so that's all the trivia I have. That's my review for the little people. I really, really enjoyed this episode. And I mean, in terms of 
actors that are in two episodes of the Twilight Zone, I think Claude Akins nails it for that. Even even Joe Maros, is that his name? I can't remember. Um, and it's scrolling up now. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, Joe Maros. Uh, Maras, I'm not sure, but anyway, um, he did, he did a fine job, but I just, Claude Akins, I'm just, I'm very much a fan of, and I like that the two episodes that he was in are two top tier episodes for me for the Twilight Zone. So, all right, that's my review of the little people. Of course, I'm going to conclude this episode as I always do with a brief review of an episode of science fiction theater. So here's the jingle for that. So this week's episode of Science Fiction Theater is Project 44, which originally aired on December 24th, 1955, and the synopsis courtesy of IMDb is a breakthrough in rocket design. Project 44 means a team of eight astronauts are to be selected to go on a mission to Mars. Those planning the project have to deal with the emotional stress of such a voyage, along with the obvious physical needs. This episode was directed by Tom Grease, or Grice, um, written by Lou Houston, and it features Bill Williams, who appeared in five episodes of Science Fiction Theater, Doris Dowling, who appeared in two episodes of Science Fiction Theater, as well as one episode of One Step Beyond, uh, Biff Elliott, who uh, was only in one episode of Science Fiction Theater, and rounding out the cast is Mac Williams, who appeared in three Science Fiction Theater episodes, as well as one episode of The Twilight Zone. He played Father Beeman in Shadowplay, uh, which I love Shadowplay, as you guys should probably know, I'm sure. Um, so, uh, so this episode is pretty unique because the pre-show of it, usually we have Truman Bradley saying some uh, you know, introducing the show to us and, and giving some kind of demonstration. But I found this to be really interesting because there's a level of humor that's added to it um, that hasn't really been seen. I thought it was very charming. So Truman Bradley comes up and then as he's saying like, good, uh, good evening, I'm your host, Truman Bradley, whatever. A man in like this space suit um, in, that looks like scuba gear shows up and I thought this was so funny because uh, Truman Bradley says no this man is not from Mars um but he's all dressed up with nowhere to go and so then Truman Bradley shows us grainy photos of Mars and says like this is this is Mars as it is you know in from our biggest and best telescopes and everything um and th there are numerous questions about what what can what life could be on Mars and what life could be sustained on Mars. And then in another element of the show that just completely surprised me, he brings on an astronomer, um, Robert Dr. Robert S. Richardson, and he says this is this is a famed astronomer. He's author of the new book Exploring Mars, um, and he starts asking the astronomer questions about Mars. And I'm like. I'm, I was just very kind of uh, taken aback by that because I, I was not expecting that. And it's really pretty awesome. And again, I know I've been hammering this point home every time I've talked about, I talk about science fiction theater, but I love that. I love that for 
the kind of science aspect of it, the, for it to be something to bring people into the world of science and 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 STEM research or like STEM ideas and everything. I just love that. It's in yeah, I don't know. So this is very different from other opening segments in the show. I hope that there's more of that in the in the episodes to come. But as he's talking to the astronomer, he asks if there's evidence of life on Mars. And uh, he says, well, yes, there's there's some evidence that there may be some kind of plant life on Mars. Uh, but it's difficult to see how animal life as we know it could live on Mars. And then Truman uh, is like, well, do you think humans can survive on Mars? And he says, yes, they can with spacesuits and and, you know, with uh, with an air supply and everything. And there are other considerations and everything. And so then Dr. Richardson says that humans could be in space somewhere between 20 and 50 years or sooner. And that's what propels Truman Bradley to introduce the episode saying, could it be sooner? That's the theme of tonight's story. And then we get Project 44, which is a pretty solid episode all told. Um, it's It does this really interesting thing at the start. It um shows like these carnival games and not games, but like these carnival rides, um, like a merry-go-round and uh, I think a tilt-a-whirl or something. And then it transitions to um, a centrifuge um, with astronauts training and everything. And I just found that to be really interesting. And the voiceover from Truman Bradley kind of in, uh, informs us about like what that is and how, you know, people need like like astronauts need to be uh, in peak physical health and they need to go through rigorous testing that's painful and everything to see if they can su survive in space. And then we are introduced to the main character who I did not get his name. I'm so surprised that I did not get his name. I'm so sorry. Um, but he's a doctor and he's talking to his fiance and it's after he has just gone through testing and everything. And he says that he is going to, that he, that he's quit his job and he's not going to worry about um, doing this kind of thing anymore because she's worried about it. But then, of course, he gets this telegram that says that he is being appointed as the person who's going to be in charge of uh, figuring out if mankind can survive in space. And I found this to be really interesting because his whole thing is that he's conscripted to a year of research and he's going to hand select the people who would be able to travel into space and travel to Mars. And I won't give away obviously what happens at the end or anything, but I did find it to be really interesting because even though it does ultimately factor into the plot, the show did a thing that I wasn't expecting with having both women and men in in the running to be on the mission to Mars. And I found that to be really interesting and progressive and everything, even though it does kind of turn into being a part of the plot and everything. But I thought that was really interesting and kind of very forward thinking. And especially after watching, um, after I've been watching uh, For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus, I was just like, I was very surprised to see that here. So anyway, um, the whole point of Project 44 is to figure out if, you know, people can survive in space. So they go through all these tests and everything, and I won't give away what happens or anything. There's kind of this like dramatic element that comes into play, which is expected because, you know, it's a it's a show. You need to add these dramatic elements and everything. But I really like how the show just demonstrates this 
hopefulness of space travel and hopefulness that mankind will go into space and conquer the stars and everything. I've said that before. It's a running theme in several episodes that I've reviewed and I love it. And it does make me feel a little bit wistful and a little bit depressed that, uh, that, you know, we didn't, we did not create the future that, that they, that people that aspired for space travel wished for in the fifties and sixties, which is a shame. Someday, maybe we'll get there someday, someday, hopefully more than just ridiculous billionaires will be able to go into space for, which is just low earth. Or I wish that we had conquered everything. I wish that we would have bases and everything in space travel. I want to live in the expanse universe. That's, that's the thing. So anyway, or mass effect, mass effect is where I want to live. So anyway, um, uh, I liked the drama that played out. There's some really good demonstrations in this show, in this episode, about the rigorousness of testing and how people will, like, the. while this episode is about that optimism, that hopefulness for space travel and, and mankind in space, it is not, it does not shy away from the fact that these you know, that, that human beings have to go through intense physical and mental, uh, mental kind of, uh, stressors to, in order to be able to survive in space. So I really like the realistic approach of that through that optimistic lens. So I won't give away anything, anything more, but I did find it again, interesting that this has a collection of women and men who are going into space and everything. And it even, I think, I feel like even though it does play into the plot a little bit at the end, it is something that I feel that they were uh, aware of because there's a scene where one of the women even says like, okay, so, um, you know, us women, we're, you know, are we just going to be involved in the tests or are we going to go to Mars too? And uh, whoever says like, oh, no, no, you guys are going to go too. Um, and then like they're, they're kind of like laughing and cheerful and they're like, yeah, you girls are great which kind of undercuts that from my millennial perspective. But uh, regardless, 1955, I, I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the swings that it made, the ambition that it showed, the, the forward thinking and everything. So I guess that's really all I have to say for Project 44. Um, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty satisfying, all told. Um, a pr- pretty satisfying episode. Yeah. So that will do it for this episode of Anthology. Next week, I'm committing to be to it being next week because I'm excited because if I, and I, I wasn't going to say this out loud anywhere, but I'll, I'll tell you guys this. If I am able, and I'm not saying that I will be able to, there's very much the uh, the the chance that I won't be, but if I am able to release an episode of Anthology once per week for the rest of 2022, then the last episode of Anthology in 2022 will be for the season three finale of The Twilight Zone. And I'm going to do everything I can to help or to to make sure that I hit that mark because I think that that would be really cool. So we'll see. We'll see what life hands me and everything. But for now, next week, in episode 93 of the podcast, I'm going to be reviewing 4 O'Clock, and Are We Invaded from Science Fiction Theater Season 1? Of course, 4, four O'Clock is from The Twilight Zone Season 3. Uh, so look forward to that next week. Again, check out Patreon, patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Uh, so yeah, without further ado, thank you and uh, see you next time. 
And now, enjoy this short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. For the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, such as early access to episodes, TV, book, and movie reviews and reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and Patreon potpourri episodes, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. And, and, you know, what this alternate history is. And what I find really fascinating about it is that it's already, it's already kind of creating this narrative in it. And I kind of know what happens in later seasons. At least I know what the main focus of like the third season is at least, um, because the, the damn poster is right there on IMDb and it says exactly what the plot is and everything. But, uh, but anyway, the thing that I find really interesting about this is that it begins with the very demoralizing moment in this alternate history where the Soviets land on the moon before we do. And the, there are cosmonauts that, that descend onto the moon and they, they are the first men on the moon. And they say that they come there for uh, Marxism and Leninism or whatever. Um, and it is just a major blow to the U.S. morale. And what I find really fascinating about this is that it it takes this position. This entire episode is built around the idea that we are the underdogs, that we are we have been defeated. We have this podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.